The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 to 5, verse 11. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise, surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is God's word. Our scripture reading this morning is about the second coming of Jesus. God came to us first at the incarnation of Jesus, which we celebrate during the Advent season at Christmas time. He comes to us regularly in our lives as we have communion with God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we are told that he will come to us again at the end of this present age when he will make all things new at the return of Christ. This is known as the second advent of Jesus. And in studying this topic, I ran across a casual statement, which is a sermon in itself. And that statement is this. No matter who you are, there's a lot of death in your future. How would you like to, how would you like to find that in a fortune cookie one day? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's realistic, though. No matter who you are, there's a lot of death in your future. And depending on the person, the event of the future, as we think of the future... Uh, brings a lot of hope, which comes with excitement and encouragement and joy and longing and expectation. Or it can produce a lot of fear. With that thought of the future, it could bring anxiety and worry and discouragement and discontent. And so before we launch into this passage today, uh, here's a working definition of hope. Here's a working definition of hope. What is hope? Hope is the comfort found in future expectations. Pretty simple, but what is hope? Hope is, as we think on the future, hope is the comfort that we have in the expectation of what the future brings. Now, this isn't just distant future in our, in our, in our death and our dying, 
Uh, it can be uh, what happens this afternoon. It could be what happens this week or this month. For instance, you get a discouraging prognosis at the doctor, and you begin to think about your future. Does this stir in your heart feelings of hope, or does it stir fear and anxiety and worry? Uh, a relationship that you cherish, it could be a, a marriage, a friendship, or a dating relationship, is fractured and destroyed and, and ripped from your life. Are you filled, as you think about the future, are you filled with hope or are you filled with fear? You're stuck in a job that you hate and you're getting older and your longest tenured job on your resume is simply sandwich artist, Subway. Are you filled with hope for the future, or are you filled with fear? Your child's rebelling from you and from the Lord. Are your expectations regarding the future described mostly as hope or fear? And so many other scenarios, when things happen in your life and you start to think on the future, what fills your emotion? Is it hope or fear? And there really isn't a neutral position on this, is there? Because no matter who you are, there's a lot of death in your future. And to think on future expectation, we have two options. One of comfort and hope, or one of anxiety and worry and fear. The future is coming and we can't stop it. And with the future um, comes a mixture of joy and sorrow. Comes a mixture of, of celebration and suffering. Different things that happen that, 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 that lighten our mood and things that happen that kind of crush us under the pressure of it. And even if somehow you uh, seem to manage to avoid a lot of the discouragement, sorrow, and suffering that might befall other people, and you have a good life, and you have a life that has minimal suffering and discouragement, and things just go well for you, and maybe you're thinking, you know, things have gone well for me. I have a great life, and, and I don't suffer well. I'm healthy. I have, uh, my, my finances have been managed well. We are told this, that eventually Jesus Christ will come, and he will judge the living and the dead. And he will come, we are, told to, we are told to expect him like a thief in the night, without any warning, and he will judge everyone who has ever lived according to the standards of God and God's holiness, his perfect righteousness. And our passage, abrupt change to this topic, now introduces us to this theme and tells us we are shown very quickly the option available to us, and that option is hope. Not only is that option available to us, it is possible and we are called into this relationship with God that as we think and, and, and have expectation of the future, no matter what happens to us in this life, we are people who can have hope. Verse 13, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, what happens when you die. I do not want you to be uninformed. You can anticipate the future and no matter what it brings with an attitude of hope. Not only does Paul, the author of this letter, say that hope is available to us, but he also gives us a great healthy framework for how to approach this, a framework for understanding how to grow in hope and experiencing a lifestyle of hope in our lives today. Let's see how he does this in our passage. First, he shows us a, a basis of hope, then, he then a focus for our hope, and lastly, the result of our hope. What does hope produce in our life? Let's look at these first, the basis of our hope. Let's look again at, at, at verse 13, which introduces this whole topic and really 
his whole argument of, these, of the passage that was read flows from this. He says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now put yourself in the shoes of first century Christians at the time. It may have been 20 years, maybe a little longer, 20 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not a long time, 20 years. Uh, And he promised... During his earthly ministry, as he, when, when he was alive on the earth and doing ministry, he promised to return to them one day and bring them to himself where they will have life everlasting uh, and they would live forever. And now, possibly for the first time, these people, these first century Christians, are seeing their loved ones, seeing their friends, seeing their neighbors grow old, grow sick, and die. And they are thinking, where's Jesus? Where's this eternal life that he promised? And they're starting to grow discontent and discouraged, and they're losing hope for as they long and expect for Jesus to return, not only for the loved ones who have died, as Paul says, fallen asleep, but now they're now looking at their own life and saying, well, what about me? What's going to happen to me? Is this all that there is? A life of waiting and then sickness and death. Maybe he's not coming back. That results in a mentality that's common in our day where we say, maybe this is all there is, what you see right now. We're not so, so, so make the best of it. Make the best of the life that you have because after all, you only have one life to live. You heard that before? You only have one life to live, so make the best of the life that you have right now. And they're starting to think that way and lose hope. Paul gets right to it. And he says very quickly two things. First, it's okay for Christians to deeply grieve because death is not our friend. We're not meant to be stoic in our approach to suffering and death. When it comes to death, we are meant to feel sadness and real grief. But then he says very quickly, too, you do not have to grieve as people who have no hope. And the basis of our comfort is found in the fact that Jesus died and he rose from the grave. Let's unpack this a little bit. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He says you don't have to grieve as those, like those who don't have any hope because Jesus died and he rose. And this is a strange argument that he makes. You don't have to be hopeless because Jesus died and he rose. And here's what this means. Paul is drawing a, a parallel between what happened to Jesus and what will happen to us. What happened to all who are united to Christ through faith, the union between a Christian and Jesus is a bond that is so radical and so permanent that it changes our entire lives. It changes our whole perspective on life. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just simply or merely die for people in general. He died for specifically people. He died for names He died for real people. He died for Kevin and David and Peter and Jennifer and Sally and Sarah. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not merely provide a way for salvation, but he took names to the cross and he died for his people. Paul says in chapter 5 that he died to take away God's wrath from us. And likewise, when he returns, he will come for those same people. 
he will come for those names. He will come for those people to give salvation. It means if you trust that he died for you, then we can trust that he will also return for you. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that when he died on the cross, he was actually, he was, God's love was being poured out for you and, and your sins. He was pardoning your sins. He was wiping the slate clean. He was expressing his grace to you. Then we can be certain that he will also return for you. He will not leave you to fend for yourself. The basis of our hope in the future is the death and resurrection of Jesus. What does it mean that we have died with Christ? It means that if you're a Christian, that God looks at you as if you were the one on the cross dying for your sins. You see, we fail to obey God's commands in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And so God's punishment needs to be poured out for us to, 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 uh, to manifest his justice. And what it means that if we are united to Christ, that when Jesus dies on the cross, God looks at us as if we ourselves are paying our debt that we owe to God. But Jesus died in our place. No more condemnation, no more debt to pay. Our sins are paid for. What does it mean that we're raised with Christ? It means complete renewal of body, mind, and soul. So much so that God delights in us completely as if we have never done anything wrong. What is it? What we hope in, therefore, will drive our lives. What we trust in, what we rest in, what we look to, to, to find comfort as we look to future expectation will drive our very lives. I want to put up verse 13 and 14 again, but somewhat incomplete here. Let me read this again in verse 13. You'll see where I didn't complete it. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that, now just keep it up there and think about this. Paul is saying, you don't have to grieve without hope. You're going to be okay. And here is why you're going to be okay. For you believe that what? Now, how would you complete, how would your life complete that verse? Since we believe that what? What is the basis of your hope and confidence in God's love for you. For since we believe that you have been a good and faithful Christian, for since you believe that you've tried your hardest and God knows the kind of effort you've put into your life, for since you believe that we believe that you're kind and funny and generous and people want to be around you and your reputation is great among your colleagues and community, for since we believe that you have kept your body healthy and you use essential oils and all of these things are just coming to your, your house is decorated well. Because we believe that you've managed your finances well, your future is secure and you can grieve with hope. For since we believe, brothers, that you voted Republican, What do you place your rest for your future expectation on? But we know how this sentence finishes, don't we? For since we believe that Christ died and was resurrected. You know, there are more things. What would you put in here? More, some of the things we place our hope in the comfort when it comes to the future. But of course, our hope in these things will never live up to their promises. For all people 
we get two options in our life for all people. It is true that no matter who you are, there's a lot of death in your future. Friends, your loved ones, your neighbors, coworkers, eventually you. And we get two options. We get to base our future comfort on one of two things. One, our record or Jesus' record. There's no third option. There's no other option presented to us. And what the scriptures invite us to do is to consider the kind of hope that is better than anything the world has to offer. It wants us to consider what does it look like to hope in someone that never fails, who died, who was buried, who rose, who's coming back for us. Or we can place our hope in something that is, is sure to fail us. Our character, our record, our finances, our reputation. Our hope in the future is not a matter of our choice to be better, but rather the result of Jesus being better. When Jesus returns, he will not gather to him all the people who were smart or good enough to find him. Christian character does not make you a Christian. Being a good person does not make you a Christian. He who bases his future comfort in his or her own record, character, or reputation will find eternal grief when Jesus returns. But for the one who trusts and longs for Jesus and places their hope in his record, his righteousness, his holiness, his promises, his work on our behalf, what awaits us is hope. And we live in light of that hope today. It drives our very lives. Everything we do is changed. Our future hope rests in the fact that Jesus was condemned so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was cursed on the cross so that we could be blessed. Jesus' blood was given so that we would be made pure and washed clean. Jesus is risen so that we would be given new life, new emotions, new relationships, new hopes, new loves, a new future. And no matter what great joys, accomplishments, or victories we have in this life, Christ's return will always be the best thing that ever happens to the one who trusts in Jesus. No matter what good pleasure comes your way, what good victories you have, or what, what great accomplishments you, you have accomplished in your life, Christ's return will always be the best thing. Now look at the other side of this. No matter what sorrows you've experienced, no matter what temptations you've given into, no matter what, what grieves you've experienced and struggles and afflictions and pain in this life, Christ's return is coming. And hope that he brings and the life that he comes to give to you will always be the best thing. This is where our hope is established. Not in our record or character. Our, our hope is established in the work of Jesus for us. Paul so quickly does this. He quickly goes, I don't want you to be without hope because Jesus died and he's alive. And he's coming back for you. So he's established our hope. So now he readjusts our focus. Now he takes our head and he, he shifts our head to focus on a life that lives in hope. 
let's look at how we properly adjust our focus, the focus of our hope. Notice that the end of chapter 4 says that Jesus will come from heaven and have with him all who have died in Christ. Then it says we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. And then what happens? Someone tell me what happens. Oh, you don't know. We are literally left hanging, okay? We're literally left hanging. Paul leaves us hanging here. Jesus leaves us hanging. We meet him in the air, and then what? Then we go to be to to heaven forever? Doesn't say that. This is often called the rapture, that, that that we meet Jesus in the sky, and we go to be in heaven forever, prancing along the clouds with Jesus, singing forever, right? The eternal worship service. Well, it doesn't say that, and that's not what this means. Paul has in mind here, by the words that he uses, is like a king that is returning from a battle of victory. And he comes into the city to the people in his kingdom. And the people, the whole city comes out and rushes out of the city to meet their victorious king and to celebrate with him and with the armies that have fought with him and with the whole town in great celebration that they're enemy has been defeated, and peace has come. And the words that Paul uses are words that the first century Greek people would understand. It is a word that was commonly used for a king that is visiting after a battle. And the people go out and they meet him and they celebrate. When a king would come into the city, the whole city would be transformed. The whole city would be, would, be, would be prepared for this great victory celebration. And they would meet their king as he entered into the city. We will not meet Jesus and float around the clouds of heaven together. We will eat. We will drink, we will sing, we will laugh, we will have the fullness of joy that has been promised to us that will have no end. But most importantly, we will be with Jesus forever. We will meet him. And then Paul leaves us hanging to what happens next because he doesn't know and nor do we know. But he says, but here is what you need to know what will happen next. Jesus will never be taken away from you. On that day, you will say for the first time, I always hoped that life could be like this. For the first time ever, you will say it and you will mean it and you will know it. And you will say, this is what I hoped life could be like forever. And it will finally be there. It will finally come to you. You will get the life that God God always wanted for you because you will finally have a world of love in the presence of your Savior who has never given up on you. This momentary encounter in the air with Jesus will lead to forever fellowship with him. And this is the important thing that we take away from this. The important thing that Paul wants us to take away from this, he says it three times in this, in this, in this dialogue, we will be with Jesus forever. The ultimate goal of our salvation is our unhindered fellowship with the God who loves us. That's the reason you're saved. That's the reason you were created. We are told that we can have hope. We can have it. Meaning we can cling to it. We can possess it. We can attach ourselves to it. We can have fellowship with hope. How do you have fellowship with an emotion? You see, it's being personified here. It's not a, it's not a feeling. It's not a, it's not a, a euphoric 
emotion. Hope is a person. We are told that we can attach ourselves to a person. Hope is, is not an attached, a detached, ethereal frame of mind that comes and goes, but hope is a person wrapped up in Jesus. Our hope, therefore, does not rest in our ability to preserve a good mood, but in Jesus' ability to bear us up. Paul is saying that Jesus will come to you. Your hope and your focus in life and your focus of hope in life does not rest in your ability to just have a good attitude and have a good focus and keep your emotions in check and together. It does not rest in your ability to preserve your good mood. Hope rests in God's ability to bear us up when we are weak, to strengthen us when we are strong, to return to us when we, uh, when we need it most, to minister to us today. Jesus will never abandon us. He will never abandon us with our heart that struggles to find peace. This is the great hope. This is our focus. So Paul says, look at Jesus. Know Jesus. Attach yourself to Christ. Cast your eyes on him and remind yourself that your hope isn't in your ability to just keep it together. But your hope is in a person that will never forget you. Make it about Jesus. So how do we spend our time? As we wait That's what Paul is getting to. He's like, I don't want you to be without hope. You know, I know your friends and family have died, and now you're thinking that you might die, and he says you might die. There's a lot of death in your future. But here's how you can spend your time as people who have hope. Let's finally look at what hope produces, the result of hope. What does hope produce? I'm going to give you just a few things here. You can jot them down if you're taking notes, kind of in bullet point form. First, spiritual alertness product of hope, that we are alert, that we are ready. Two analogies are given by Paul. One is a thief in the night, and the other is the pregnant women giving birth. Christ's return will be sudden and unexpected like a thief, and it will be sudden and unavoidable like labor pains. So we are to remain alert. And then he goes on and talk about this. He says, neither, this is kind of interesting. I thought a lot about this. Two things, you you don't want to be drunk when a thief comes or when you're giving labor. I don't know that, so this is what he's, maybe, I don't know, lady, maybe you're like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. This is where I'm going to disagree. So Paul says, be sober. He says, be people today. You get, people get drunk at night. So he takes this analogy. He's talking about these, these are activities that you don't want to be caught off guard. You want to be ready. You want to be prepared. You want to have a plan. Mental intoxication is a, a, a sort of mental laziness that lures a person into carelessness. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll take it one day at a time. We'll just, I don't really have a thought about that. You know, I just trust God. You know, he'll kind of give me what I need. Mental intoxication is what happens when you're, you know, you drive a route that you drive every single day for 10 years, and then you're in the car, and 20 minutes go by, and you're like, did I just wake up? Like, how did I get to work? I don't remember the turns. That's mental intoxication. And the Bible lovingly speaks out against living our faith in this way. Uh, It speaks out against a way of living that merely just gives a corner of our life to the hope of the gospel or a corner of our heart or a corner of our mind. It's kind of, yeah, I kind of, I'm kind of, you know, just kind of work, kind of 
I'm a Christian, and I kind of focus on Jesus from time to time. And The Bible lovingly invites us to be sober-minded because Jesus is going to turn, and we're not going to get a warning. He'll come like a thief. He'll come on like labor pains. They're unavoidable. They're unexpected. And so we ought to be alert, not out of fear, but out of vigilance and readiness to, long, to wait for our Savior and to live our lives every day as if he could come back right now. Right now. <laughs> How about right now? And we don't know. And so we want to be caught when Jesus returns with our heart focused on him, our minds steadfast, our attitude firm in the faith, we want to be standing firm so that when Jesus comes back, we are ready to fall down and worship and fall down to embrace him. The, loving, the Bible lovingly invites us to that. Another is patience. Patience. The struggle is one that, yeah, we, we rarely wait for anything today. Um, and that mentality has a direct bearing on our life as Christians, I believe. I admit I often do this as I'm standing in line at Starbucks to make my order. I will, on my mobile app, place an order for that drink and just to figure out which one will be quicker. <laughs> and if my mobile order is done first, I'll get out of line and go get it. And it usually is, so you know. Uh, they'll make the mobile orders first. Pretty great. So anyway, that's how, because I don't, who's got 30 seconds in their day, right? <laughs> And this has direct bearing on our relationship with Jesus. The absence of opportunities to learn patience in our culture has the potential to make us bad Christians. Because one of the fundamental aspects of the Christian faith is patience and waiting on the Lord. Waiting for a very, very long time. We express our dependency of, on God through prayer as we wait we, we, we remain calm in self-control as we bring our minds and bodies under, his, under submission to his word. We don't make idols of the safety that is promised by our government and culture. We wait. And we avoid the temptation to give in to the, to the promises that, what if you don't have to wait? What if we can make your life happy now? What if we can give you assurance of safety now? And Paul says there's going to come a time where everyone's saying peace and prosperity and, 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 and peace and security. He says the culture is going to say, we're good, we're safe. You know what I'm talking about? We see that. We've got a great military, the strongest in the world. You don't need to worry about the future. Our economy is great. The unemployment is low. You're at 401k. The stock market is the highest it's ever been. And that helps your optimism of the future, doesn't it? Paul says, those are idols. Don't place your optimism of the future on that because those can come crumbling down as quickly as they rose. And when they do, are you going to realize how little you trusted in Jesus? So be patient. Be patient. And, and lastly, there's longing. You know, hope produces this bubbling over in our heart where we long in deep affection for Jesus to come back where we get to be with him in the future perfect kingdom. Perhaps you know the story of Joni Erickson Tata. She is a Christian writer. Uh, she's uh, 
loves Jesus. She broke her neck in a diving accident when she was 17. She's been paralyzed from the neck down for the past 50 plus years. And she says this, suffering makes us long for heaven. I just can't wait. And she says, I can't wait. The first thing I'm going to do when Jesus returns is I'm going to run to him with my new legs. Now, this is beautiful. And, then, I mean, what, and, and, and she, she, we don't want her suffering, though. And we don't want her suffering, and we try to avoid the suffering. But she says that suffering actually makes us long for heaven. Knowing our circumstances, knowing our struggle, struggling with our world rather than giving in to the temptation to lose hope makes us long for what Jesus promises to give us. It's tempting when we look at the world to find our comforts in what the world has to offer, but we're actually not meant to long for what the world has to offer. We're actually meant to long for Jesus. And there's nothing like death to crush the lie that the earth can actually satisfy all our needs. And so in this way, death is a gift. Death is a doorway to what we were created to long for, to be with God forever. And Paul encourages us to adjust our expectations of this life. Paul does speak of God's wrath coming with Christ. When Jesus returns, God's wrath will come with him. It's like, it's like Tombstone, right? You know, when, you know, when Wyatt Earp comes, he's like, tell him, that, tell him that I'm coming and hell's coming with me, right? Okay, so Gladiator, Tombstone. These are, you now you know, these are my movies. Okay. We're give, Paul does speak about this, you know, we can, but we can long for Jesus to return like a child on Christmas morning. Can't wait to get the life that I, that I knew that I always hoped for. We're to give ourselves to longing less for what this world has to offer and longing more for what Jesus has to offer on that day. We're to focus on Jesus, not a date of his return. We're to focus on Jesus, not healing or sickness. Our sickness. We're to focus on Jesus, not comfort through material prosperity. We're to focus on Jesus, not a detailed roadmap for how God will meet our needs in this life. We're to focus on Jesus. We're to long for his return. Timing, healing, and provision or specific direction in, in this life may not come. And the attitude that God's word desires to impress upon us in this life is a deepening experience with Jesus every day, rather than deliverance from all of our discomfort. It doesn't mean that we don't pray for healing and provision, but it does mean that the bedrock of our joy in this life does not rest on our deliverance from him. But the bedrock of our joy rests in the fact that Jesus promises to come back to take us to himself. We will be with him forever, and he will give us the fullness of joy that has no end. And he will never abandon us. And we will be with Jesus in a way that we've never been with him before. And it means if we trust in this, it means that our bad things will always turn out for our good. The good things will never be taken from us, and the best things are yet to come. Let's pray.